Welcome to Big Blend Radio, where we celebrate variety and how it adds spice to quality of life. Welcome, everybody. Today, we get to chat with Peter Kagayama. He is a third-generation Japanese-American, a best-selling author, and an urbanist. And he's a former senior fellow with the Alliance of Innovation. And as a writer and speaker, he's written four nonfiction books on cities and urban development. So, you know, we're going to have to have him back on the show for that. You all know us here at Big Blend. Uh, you know, we've got our parks and travel show and we love all of that. But um, he's also a fiction writer. And his second book in the Cats Takamoto series is out. It is called Midnight Climax. The first one is called Hunter's Point. And I encourage you to go to his website, peterkagayama.com. Welcome, Peter. How are you? Thank you, Lisa. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, I heard, I heard that, you know, you're in St. Petersburg, Florida, beautiful area. And yes. it's a little cloudy today. So that might be more like San Francisco's weather where your book is set. Uh, well, you know, weather, you know, impacts the way we think and feel about cities. And some weather is far more dramatic than others. And I think San Francisco has some of the most dramatic weather in the United States. So yeah. Um, yeah. you know, hard pressed to live up to that, but yeah. Oh yeah. Always wear a jacket, right? <laughs> Always wear a jacket, even in summer. Yes. Yes, exactly. But it's a beautiful city. And you know, when we came back to this country from South Africa, it was like one of the first places I wanted to go with San Francisco. And, um, I just, it is, there's so much history and just the history of, you know, we go back to, you know, the Spanish going through with the Presidio and mm -hmm. um, there's the nuclear history, which that connects over to your family history, too, with, you know, also yeah. World War Two and um, just so much cultural history as well. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, San Francisco just doesn't look and feel like pretty much any other city in, in America. It, it is very unique that way. Yeah, the closest I would say would be Cape Town in South Africa. And even wow. that's completely different. Just that yeah. coastal port cities and port cities always have something going on that yes. we shouldn't know about, but we want to know about, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> gateways. Yeah. They they feel like we're they feel like they connect us to someplace else. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, let let's just can we start at the beginning with the series with Katz Takamoto series with um sure. Hunter's Point. So kind of give us you know, give us the backdrop. Obviously it's San Francisco as we were saying, but this is going back a few generations, right? So yes. give us a little bit of a backdrop and, and introduce us to sure. Hunter's Points for those who haven't read it yet. So Katz Takamoto is a Nisei, a second generation Japanese American. Um he's a private detective and the story uh, the stories are set in San Francisco starting in the late 1950s. Uh, Hunter's Point takes place essentially in 1958, uh, which is the height of the Cold War, uh, which would, of course, go on for another 25 years. But, you know, it was raging uh, at the time. Uh, and Katz is a former uh, soldier. He served in the, uh, the U.S. Army in the 442nd, which was a very famous uh, combat regiment that served uh, with incredible distinction over in Europe. He uh, comes back, and uh, the story is, like many of the Japanese Americans who tried to reintegrate into society, he found, you know, he got an education and decided what he wanted to do, and oddly enough, he becomes a private detective. Um, that's part because uh, stories about, you know, accountants are probably not as interesting. With apologies to the the accountants out there, weirder stuff happens to private detectives, which I guess uh, lends a, a nice platform for, for telling these kinds of stories. Yeah, I like this. You know, we actually interviewed a um, FBI, undercover FBI guy in mm -hmm. San Francisco. 
who's a musician. He came on the show, Donovan Plant and the, and the New Leafs is his band name. And, <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, halfway through the interview, I'm all like, I love your music, but can we ask about this? <laughs> you know, did you have to wear a wig? You know, but, you, you know, the private investigator side of it is, is crazy. And, and then you, when you open up the book of Midnight Climax, wow. Um, yeah, that, yeah, it's a little, it's a little hot and steamy and then crazy. It, it gets, it, there's yeah. a pace that moves and moves and you're like, what's going on? What do you mean there's other people watching people? You know, what's yeah. going on here? And um, so this was, so this kind of touches in with the whole thing about the CIA that were, they were really, mm-hmm. they were, weren't they testing like acid and things like that on people? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's pretty been pretty well, you know, covered and documented over, you know, the, this last generation when it became public knowledge that the CIA was doing um, um, mind control, thought control experiments from like the 1950s into the 70s. Uh, they were tr- they believed that, you know, the Russians and the Chinese were experimenting with psychotropic drugs, you know, LSD oh. and stuff like that. And they thought they could use that to create either, you know, again, read people's minds, control them, uh, turn them into sleeper agents. It was all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, that they thought was, you know, was that was part of the so-called science at the time, and that operation was actually called MK Ultra, and many of our, you know, our, your listeners might have heard of that because it's become a famous sort of uh, trope that is used in a lot of stories. Because again, it's it was so crazy because it was real, and the title of my this second book, Midnight Climax, actually comes from another CIA operation that was actually a subset of MK Ultra, where they were actually using brothels. And prostitutes to lure Johns in uh, to uh, to secretly dose them and then observe them and try to get them to do stuff. And this occurred in two American cities. It occurred in in New York City and San Francisco. And so, wow, I, I first, didn't know New York. Yeah, huh. when I first read about that, I thought, "Holy crap, that is such a crazy background." Yeah, I I have to use that as a as a you know a setup for a story. And it, I love it, that it, you say Johns too, because that's that goes back to that era as well. You know, <laughs> they're luring the Johns in, you know, for 40 in, bucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, here it is. Hey, actually, back then, that was a little bit more money than what 40 bucks is now. I don't think we can even buy, you know, two cups yeah, of I coffee. Didn't, yeah, I didn't. You know, just the economies of, you know, uh, of the day. It's like, what would have been, you know, a cup of coffee or the price of a prostitute? Yeah. That's the kind of question you should ask Google. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Your Google history has got to be so cool. You know, yeah, prostitution, it, it, drugs, oh, the CIA. Yeah. Well, how much I was should, a prostitute yeah. back then? <laughs> well, my third book, I, I won't tell you exactly what's going on with that, but yeah, you're right. If you, if you, you know, a fiction writer's, you know, search history could be a strange thing. It's like, hmm, you're either yeah. a, a spy, a terrorist, a pervert, or a writer. Yeah, I guess or maybe a murderer. That's, that's yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, this was it was interesting, you know, just how you started the book it's like okay i'm in you know this is this is getting wild but didn't they you know with this whole experimenting thing didn't they do this to manson charles manson i don't know if i heard that right i was listening some people to some believe that you know um manson was a was a, a i guess you could call him a a guest of the state uh numerous times uh in the 1960s i guess even from the late 50s if i remember some of my uh history correctly so it's possible he was experimented on. Um, I, I don't know too much, you know, about his, you know, his particular yeah. history. But if the if it was happening in other places, it is entirely possible. And he was on the West Coast. 
Um, mm-hmm. I do know a little bit of the history. Did you did you know, for instance, that Charles Manson was in San Francisco during the Summer of Love in 1967? See, oh, yeah. that's creepy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. Um, there, there's yeah, there's so many stories about him, like people knowing his people and all of that. So I wonder though if he was experimented on, if that mess with his brain you know who knows right but our government um has done a lot of experimenting on people especially people of color over the years uh women of color have um been experimented on and um operated on without them knowing what was really happening so it's kind of interesting that governments do that don't you think it's it's kind of freaky Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, well, we hope it's still history. Like, we hope. You know, yes. Yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of a, a freaky thing, but um, let's, let's go into cats and the whole series. What spurred mm-hmm. you to even start a series? You're going from, Hey, let's yeah. take a walk in the park and, and yeah, make our again. cities beautiful to, Hey, right. <laughs> we've got murder and drugs well, and brothels and stuff going on. Uh, it, honestly, part of it, a big part of it was COVID. Um, I finished my fourth book on cities. It was uh, actually an updated and expanded version of my original book. It's called For the Love of Cities Revisited. It was the 10-year anniversary edition of that. And I'd kind of gotten back into the writing mode. And part of it is, you know, I, I was reading some really interesting stuff. In fact, the book that I credit most with sort of firing my imagination around this was by a guy named uh, Jan- Daniel James um, uh, Brown, uh, the book was called Facing the Mountain, and it was this nonfiction account of the Japanese-American experience during World War II. And some listeners may know uh, Brown from his most famous book, which is called The Boys in the Boat, which is about the 1936 um, uh, Olympic uh, rowing team from Washington. In fact, they just made a movie about it. it just came out a, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. So he wrote this other story or this other book about the Japanese-Americans uh, during World War II. And I read it and I was like, oh, my God, this is all the stuff that my father never talked about. Um, my father was a was a Nisei, second generation Japanese American, mm-hmm. full blooded you know, Japanese, although he was born in San Francisco. Um, he was interned along with my grandparents and his two sisters. Um, and this was part of the family history that was not really discussed like many of the of his generation. They didn't want to talk about it. So I had to learn about all this stuff by reading this book by, you know, Daniel James Brown. And it's just amazing stuff. And it kind of, I thought, well, what that, again, you think that would be a really interesting background for a character. And mm-hmm. you start thinking about where would that character live? It's like probably San Francisco, which is the epicenter of sort of the Japanese American community. Yeah. And started to build on that and build on that. And it's like, you know, one thing led to another. And it's like, it's like, well, I'm not doing the other, you know, sort of the, the, the city stuff because it was still COVID. So you're, you're, the imagination runs wild, I guess, in sort of strange circumstances like that. And I'm very glad it did. Mm. And, and going into your family history, that has to be a little tough, you know, and because mm. at that time, too, like you were saying, it's kind of that quiet history. It's, it's you know, even yes. from all levels, you know, and different sides of the war, people just kind of kept, you know, the survivors of it kept quiet and moved on, it seems like. People yes. that were really faced with the worst part of the war. And, you know, um, again, the Japanese American community kind of just, they kind of said, you know, we don't talk about it, move on. And it was not exactly, you know, a shining moment in, you know, U.S. history. So oftentimes it's kind of glossed over. 
Um, you know, a lot of people tell me, it's like, I really didn't learn about that in, in, you know, in school, you know, some of them learned about it later in life. Um, sadly, there's lots of, you know, instances like that in our, in our history that are just either painful, embarrassing, um, just, you know, uh, yeah, just really hard to, to, to fathom and hard to deal with. So we tend to, you know, sort of gloss over them or just pass over them. But uh, it was a great way for me to reconnect with my sort of my Japanese heritage. I'm, I'm half Japanese. My mom, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is a kind of an unusual, you know, uh, pairing at the time. And I use that actually in my story uh, because Katz meets a uh, redheaded Irish woman from Ohio uh, named Molly in the, the first book, Hunter's Point. And my mother was a redheaded Irish woman uh, from Ohio who happened to be named Molly. So there's some... Yeah. Some, you know, some there's some family stuff in there in, in in trying to make a good story, but I thought, all right, this this would be kind of fun. My dad was never the wild Irish to, rose had to had that. to persist. Yeah, bring the wild Irish rose in. You know, Molly's oh, yeah. a good name for yes. that. You know, but hey, you, you had to have a Molly in there because you're also talking about drugs. So hey, kind of oh well, there you go. Hey, hey, good tie in there. I don't know, I don't know anything. You know, I wouldn't even know what Molly looks like. That's how bad I am at this, but. <laughs> um, you know, well, coming to this, coming to the States, I had a rude awakening about what drugs were <laughs> like, you know, really? there's, there's, yeah. there's pot and marijuana and weed and all that kind of stuff. That's normal. Like, that's a normal thing. But it's legal then, in more than half the States now. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a normal thing. And then here, like, I didn't know, you know, half of what was going on and, and, and I know that you have a musical background too. And, and so when we got here and we were living in Southern California and a band and, and I found out half the band was high all the time. And, and yeah. I didn't understand why was, why did your personality change so fast? Oh, oh, oh meth makes you think that people are spying in your bedroom. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> can't have you, you know, as a drummer anymore. So pot seems you know. very benign compared to, you know, a lot of stuff that's out there now. So, yeah. yeah well, I don't know. I, from what I've heard, it's kind of, it's a little different now too. I mean, I grew up in, in South Africa and that was kind of a, you know, it's part of the grass, <laughs> grass yeah, yeah, okay. but you know, but, but it, it's so interesting to get into this, all of this, because also when you look, look at Japanese American history, um, we do cover military history a lot on the show. Mm -hmm. It's, it's interesting. And I can understand the fear from the American side, you know, that when, oh my gosh, because the Japanese, quite frankly, were badass, you know, in regards to war and, and military. They've always been amazing. You know, your culture is good at it, you know. So I think there was a huge amount of fear. But at the same time, if you look in history, the Japanese have been a huge part of our military protecting this country too. So did you dig into that part as, as you're getting into the history? Well, certainly the, um, you know, the, the, the Japanese American uh, combat team or the, the, the combat unit, the 442nd was a, was an experiment at the time, because remember in 1942 um, uh, Roosevelt signs the, uh, the executive order that says all the Japanese and people of Japanese ancestry on the West coast of the United States have to be moved out of there. Basically like a hundred mile wide swath from Washington all the way down to the Southern tip of California, which basically sets up these internment camps. And then uh, in, by 1943, they start realizing, wait a minute, there's a lot of healthy young men in these camps that we would like to, you know, that would you know, probably if given the opportunity, they would want to serve. And they did. So this sets up this interesting juxtaposition of these guys volunteering essentially out of prison camps for the U.S. Army. 
And, you know, the vast majority of them do. They, they were required to sign a loyalty oath, which was odd because no German-American or no, no Italian-American um, had to sign a loyalty oath. But these most of these uh, almost all these uh, young men did. And then they went over to Europe because they weren't allowed to serve in the Pacific, which kind of made sense because in part because there was some worry that's like, well, they might see their Japanese ancestors and decide they want they're more Japanese than American, which was kind of BS. But the real reality was is that a Japanese face in an you know even in an American uniform you were you could have been shot by your own you know side just because you looked like the enemy. It's like so that kind of made sense. So these guys served in Europe and they served with incredible distinction. Uh, the 442nd was and remains the most decorated uh, unit in U.S. Army history. Uh, they called it the red. They called it the uh, the Purple Heart Brigade because these guys had something to prove. And uh, yeah, I guess maybe the bit of that samurai spirit or something like that um, kind of came through it because these guys were incredibly brave um, and sometimes I guess even incredibly stupid, they said, uh, because they felt like they had to, more to prove uh, because of the color of their skin. Yeah, I can imagine, you know. Wow, a lot, a lot. So you've got to, <laughs> you've had to do a lot of history, like like a lot of research to get this um, all together because you're going yeah. back in in time and then at the same time you've, you've got to know like okay drugs and murder and stuff you know um, well you know you watch enough television you've seen you've seen tons of drugs and murder by the time you know you're you're an yeah. adult um yeah it was it, more of it was weaving together the actual history and stuff that really happened uh, how do you use that as a you know, as an element of a of a fictional story how do you use real people um, as part of, you know, telling a fictional story, for instance, in the first book, Hunter's Point, um, Jimmy Stewart and Jack Kerouac are characters oh, uh, in, that. in the second book, uh, slightly lesser known in some ways, but uh, a guy by the name of Ken Kesey, who famously goes on to write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a, you know, he's a young writer in uh, in the second book, Midnight Climax. So Very uh, cool. trying to integrate, you know, real people and, you know, and, and make it part of a, uh, of a, hopefully what I think is a, a really good story. That's fun. I mean, and you're an amazing writer. What's it like going from writing nonfiction into fiction? It's very different. Very different. It's, you know, yeah. if, you, if you'd ask me, you know, sort of, you know, three or four years ago, are you, do you feel like a writer? I said, well, I'm more of a speaker who occasionally writes because, you know, four books in 10 years was not exactly, you know, Stephen King sort of, uh, you know, uh, prolific. But after, you know, Hunter's Point came out and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the process and it was very, very different. I kind of embraced that idea. I said, yeah, I guess maybe I am a writer. And now I kind of, I absolutely say, yes, I, I am a writer. And I, I, I really love that. And, it, you know, and it is very different. It's a very different mindset. You know, to write nonfiction requires, you know, a certain type of research. You got to you go to places, you observe, you take notes and this for, you know, fiction. It's like almost you dream up this like wild scenario. And it's like, well, then how would they do that? And then you sort of research how something like that becomes possible or like what was, you know, what was happening in 1959, in 1960 uh, that you could you know, possibly use. So it's, it's a different process, but I do love it. I am absolutely mm. loving it. Do your characters talk to you? Um, uh, not in sort of a crazy, is he crazy, kind of crazy kind of way. No, I don't hear the voices in my head. Everyone, Peter's do... not doing the psychedelics, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I do feel like I've come to know them. And there's, you know, certain things, and, uh, and my, my wife, who's also my first reader, 
you know, she, as oh. I, I said in the, my dedication to the second book, she's my first reader in all things. And um, illustrator. And the illustrator of the books, by the way. Yes, she's an amazing uh, uh, artist. She's a, she's an architect. So she's one of those old school architects who can actually draw. So she's mm. made some, you know, did some amazing illustrations for the books. Um, but after a while, you kind of get to know the characters. And she, there's even been instances, you know, where she would read something. She goes, that doesn't seem like cats or that Molly wouldn't say that. Or Shig would do this, like, and you know. So I think she's come to know them as well, and uh, that's actually kind of cool. Um, so yeah, not quite speaking to me in those voices yet, but they do sort of. I do think about them as almost sort of real incarnations in some ways. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Shig. Um, you know, we've talked to, yeah. we've touched on Molly and and cats, but Shig, their their friend. Um, yeah, he was a real yeah. guy, Shigayoshi Morao. So Shig was a Japanese-American. He was interned um, at the Minidoka uh, camp up in Idaho. He served during World War II. Uh, he's with the Military Intelligence Service, uh, which was the, the translation uh, group, the, you know, the, the translators, Japanese to uh, English, English to Japanese. And in uh, the mid-50s, he goes to San Francisco, and he gets a job at City Lights Bookstore. And if any of you have been to San Francisco, you've probably been or you've heard of City Lights. It's this very famous uh, bookstore in the North Beach neighborhood. It is still there. It was known as sort of a uh, a radical uh, outlier artistic uh, bookstore. It was the, the the bookstore made famous by all the beat poets and the beat writers, mm -hmm. Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and those folks. And Shig was the longtime manager of that store. And he became kind of famous because he had the distinction of selling a copy of Allen Ginsberg's book, Howl, to an undercover mm -hmm. police officer, which led him to getting arrested for selling obscenity. You can imagine in 1957, um, this, you know, this book was deemed, uh, this poem was deemed obscene and he was taken to court. And so there's a big you know, trial. Of course, ultimately, the you know, First Amendment free speech wins and Shig becomes sort of a hero of the you know, First Amendment free speech kind of uh, uh, movement. And he kind of basked in that. And he was one of those sort of central connectors in the artistic scene there in North Beach for, you know, for decades. And it was fun to use him to make him Katz's best friend. And again, he was a real guy. Um, and he went through the, the, the same experience that Katz did of, you know, internment and serving, you know, in the military. And then having to be Japanese or Japanese-American, you know, in the post-war era when I'm sure it was not very, it was very hard to have to look like him you know, and walk the streets of this American city because, you know, these guys were the enemy or guys who looked like him were, were the enemy, you know, just, you know, yesterday, essentially. So that became part of the uh, of, of the balance. And I love how he's become sort of the, the conscience and a bit of the comic relief uh, in the stories. And yeah, he is he is Katz's best friend. That kind of balances out the relationship with Katz and Molly, doesn't it? Having the third yeah. person there to kind yeah. of buffer that, you know, and and so their relationship, they seem pretty tight, but I appear, it says, you know, from what I've read that um, it's going to get a little complicated in a midnight climax. Well, um, they are, you know, again, imagine. You Don't know, spill and, the beans. No, Don't I won't spill, spill the beans. beans. But, but interracial marriage uh, or inter interracial relationships were still provocative, you know, in the 1950s, mm -hmm. you know, and onwards even. Um, and, and you did see, you know, Asians. Uh, and Caucasians together, but most of the time it was uh, a Caucasian man with an Asian woman, you know, the whole war bride. Oh, yeah. Uh, thing. So seeing an Asian man with a white woman was kind of transgressive at the time. And my parents, they talked a little bit about that. 
you know, of what it was like for them. And they, they were, you know, they met and they, you know, uh, fell in love, got married in Ohio. Um, so yeah, you can imagine even, perhaps even more conservative uh, in that sense. So mm. yeah, the using, you know, sort of that sort of as a backdrop and that kind of friction, you know, to, to tell stories, to, uh, you, know, how, you know, how we have things in common. We are, we're different, you know, in some ways, but we are far more alike in most of the important ways. I think also Katz, uh, as, as his character too, um, being a veteran too, right. And then also mm-hmm. his kind of work is he, he's seeing things that are hard yes. to digest. You know, they didn't call it uh, PTSD back then. They would have called it battle fatigue uh, or shell shock. You know, and cats, and I, I not no spoilers. Cats goes through a fairly traumatic, you know, event in Europe. Um, he does earn a silver star because of it. So he's, he's clearly a brave guy. But you know, sometimes even the you know the, those acts of bravery are it's like it required you know some catastrophic something catastrophic happened. And so we see in in the first book, we have some of the hints of that sort of PTSD. We explore that a lot more in the second book, Midnight Climax, uh, very much di- you know digs into that. And we actually meet the guy who was sort of the, the psychiatrist that um, that Katz worked with during World War II. And he plays a very important role in the story that is set there in 1959, um, because he is treating another soldier who's gone through some amazing, uh, I shouldn't say amazing, so he's gone through some hellish uh, experiences. So it's a so, it's a way for yeah. us to talk about something kind of, that is still important today, how we treat our veterans and PTSD and all of all of that. Yeah, and understanding and uh, and yeah. the system is so hard for them, you know, yeah. to navigate. It's like you know, I always say, you know, when someone, you know, goes through cancer or some kind of medical thing, heart disease, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. The worst part is the medical system. It's worse than the disease often, you know, trying to understand what's going on, who to call the insurance yeah. companies, it's you know, so it, it just, it's yeah, challenging. the red tape, yes. um, the, it's just, it, the system is just not user friendly. And I think that's the same way for our veterans coming home. It, it's not easy. And then, yeah. then it, you have to, and, and then it's in your face too, if you do it, you know, it's kind of like well, you have to acknowledge what's going on and, Instead yeah. of being nudged, nudged the nudged to the to the helping side, you know what I sometimes, mean. Nurtured. Sometimes the hardest thing is simply, you know, asking for help. Mm-hmm. You know? And especially think about it, you know, uh, these veterans. Most of them, most often, you think of men uh, who you know have to be strong and brave. And hey, you're a soldier. You're a tough guy. You know, to come back and say I'm I'm not right. That's that's got to be incredibly hard. You know, to do. Um, so yeah, and I think we've gotten better over time, certainly, um, but we still probably have yeah. a long way to go. Yeah, I think so. I think we do. I think you know it's interesting with with your novel too, your series is that you're not taking us too far back in history. And at this time now, mm-hmm. we're also everyone's talking about you know World War II era mm-hmm. is you know where they're leaving us now. You know it's. Yeah. time to go to the next plane so we're missing some of that history and it's important to get it out there while people are still here you mm. know yeah and so true. people can connect with you know maybe their grandparents um japanese or you know non-japanese anyway, you know I, I, yeah. all all sides you know um to have those connections and communication so that there's more understanding and Ooh. as in a story 
always makes it easier to have an understanding. You know, textbooks, like you're saying, you know, high school textbooks, it's like, and this happened and that happened, boom, period. It's like, what? (laughs) You know, we missed the story. And the the history is the story of people, you know? Exactly. It's, you know, history is, you know, it's this complex, if you look at history as a story, I think you'd under, you'd try to understand it in a different way. Instead, we teach history as, as you said, it's a collection of you know facts and figures and dates um, and, and names that don't really mean anything. But if you put them into a story, then you can understand like, okay, what was it like to live in America, you know, in the immediate aftermath of of the Soviet Union launching Sputnik, which is sort of part of the backdrop of of Hunter's Point, because Sputnik was launched in like October of 1957. And we think of this little tiny wow. satellite. It's like, oh, big deal. They launched the satellite. But no, the point was, is they launched the very first one and they beat us, the Americans, to it. And that was terrifying for folks. Mm-hmm. And again, so that's hard to, you know, to relate in just a few sentences of, of dry history. But you put it into a story that justifies some of what the some of the some of the bad actors in Hunter's Point, they're using that as sort of the excuse to do some other kind of bad things. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it is amazing. Yeah. I mean, and the history is repeating itself now, too, isn't it? You yeah. Know? <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. So having this next book, you know, well, well it's being in San Francisco as an mm-hmm. urban planner. It's got to be, you know, as a planner, but also understanding cities, yeah. you know, people have a like a in anti San Francisco, the homelessness has always been there since I remember. I mean, we've been doing this for years and, and it's, you know, traveling the country full time. I'm sorry. I don't know anywhere who hasn't, who isn't having a problem with this. And, and that means our country has a problem. It's not it there. And I think a lot of homelessness comes from, from what we've understood through, you know, interviews with, you know, people who work in that field, it's coming from, you know, trauma Trauma, in it you know addiction and of course we've got you know this opioid thing and fentanyl and all of that that's really made things it's it's insane you know um i remember 2009 it was 2011 or 12 yeah we did an interview and at that time the average homeless person's age was nine years old and this was after you know the 2008 crash you know so it took its toll on families and so i think san francisco's always had this bad rap for this and at the same time you've gonna it's also part of the character in a way of the city to me they're part of their it's part of the makeup you know this is my Um, personal experience like personal thing is like i wouldn't go there just like i wouldn't say i wouldn't go there over that you know, people yeah, do. Honestly, I've been back to San Francisco multiple times in the last, you know, couple of years. Yeah, there are places I would feel a little uncomfortable if, especially if I was, you know, if I was a woman by myself. It's like, yeah, I probably sure. wouldn't walk through the tenderloin after yeah. dark by myself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. But during the day, you're fine. You know, but here, here, the thing about, the, I think the, the rap that San Francisco has gotten is because it's been, you know, it's very visible. And also because in, in some ways, San Francisco... Uh, was the height of a lot of r- very positive urbanity. You know, it was the center of the tech industry, the, you know, of, of wealth. And it was the gateway to uh, the Pacific and to Asia. All this stuff. San Francisco has this amazing sort of, you know, reputation. And then when you see that there's sort of like, and here's some really negative stuff there. And I think it's you know, a, a bit of that. It's like, well, you know, maybe it wasn't all that. And so I, I think there's 
San Francisco is, is, is all, the light has always shined very, shown very brightly on them. And now that they are having problems, it's also shining very brightly on those problems. Will San Francisco get through this? Yes, they will. It's still an amazing city. Um, they will figure it out. And again, once they figure it out, I think they become maybe the, um, the, the, the leading edge of like how other cities can figure it out. Cause you're absolutely right. It's not just a San Francisco problem. It's not a California problem. Oh, it's no. a national problem. It absolutely is. I mean, you, there's not one city. I mean, we were in Madison, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. and I, and I saw, you know, homeless people in the snow. Yeah. And I'm like, how, how are you doing this? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm still cold inside, <laughs> you know, how, you know, it's, um, it's something, and I'm not knocking Madison. Madison's awesome. Madison rocks, oh, but great. Uh, it's, it's just, this is a national problem. Yes. And, and I think people go where they can be warm, except for in Madison. I don't know. Like, yeah. How do you just get out of there? You, you, you're stuck there. You're, you're stuck, you know? Um, so it's, it's complicated and, but it is part of our history of a as a country too. And I think a lot of the homelessness started with veterans um, coming yes. home from Vietnam and, and even from world war two, you know, in the Korean war and um, even from you world know, war one, actually, even so, then really. Wow. I mean, we get the world, world war one ends and what happens almost immediately after that is the Spanish flu. The Spanish yeah. flu made COVID look like, you know, the sniffles by comparison. The Spanish flu was multiple, was several times more lethal uh, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, people dying from from the uh, the infection. So there was you know, there was a lot of stuff that's, that's always happened. And then, you know, we have the so-called roaring 20s and then the crash. And then, you know, you have uh, the depression when homelessness becomes sort of a literally becomes the national you know, identity of people losing their jobs, losing their homes. Yeah. Um, you know, all yeah. The, look at, look at the Dust Bowl. You yeah, know, everybody, California was settled, uh, you know, the farming country. Part of that is, you know, multiple uh, immigrants yes. coming in. I mean, it, it's like Tulare County, um, Central California Valley, San Joaquin yeah, Valley, yeah. that area. If you look at the multiple cultures, there's yes. a museum in Visalia, California that, showcases all the people involved in agriculture it goes from armenia to the Hmong Hmong people yeah. um they don't even have their own country anymore you know it's it's um it, it's just so diverse which is something to celebrate really mm -hmm. you know diversity is good it means we all have good food you know but it, <laughs> but but at that time you know the dust bowl happened that everyone was homeless doing that and yeah. and I believe it's actually illegal to be homeless, which is weird, you know. So I don't. It, I don't maybe maybe it was back then. I I don't know. It's not illegal to be homeless now. There's all really kinds of, no. It's not. You're, yeah, it's not illegal to be homeless. Um, the condition oh, I that it was. the condition means that it, it, you can't basically if somebody's sleeping on the street, you can't arrest them in most places now. If there is. Uh, unless there is a place for them to go, you have to have, you know, homeless shelters, you have to have a, a bed for them somewhere. And that's sure. been, that, that's been the major problem in California, especially in San Francisco, who've not been able to build anywhere near the amount of, of housing or affordable housing that is necessary. Yeah. So under the current, the, 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 under current law, you can't arrest people for being homeless yeah. uh, unless you, you know, have a place for them to go and, Frankly, there there's not a place for them to go, especially in you know Northern California. 
In in Midnight Climax, when you delved into this whole thing that the CIA were doing with, you know, the psychedelics and then the, you know, all of these different testings, right? And at the same time, psychedelics were were Mm -hmm. coming, becoming out, you know, coming out at that time too. Psychedelics were legal at that time. LSD was legal until the mid 60s. No, I didn't. Didn't. So all this stuff's going on. The shenanigans are happening, but I bet that led to some homelessness too at the end of it you know if well we people... have there's a little there's a little vignette in the in the story where um cats and his friends uh come across a couple of guys who are you know they they you call them homeless today unhoused um and they have a, a little incident that you know, actually resolves i i think in an interesting way um yeah uh we, again the homeless have been part of our country as you say from the very beginning it's just now, you know, we have, you know, ways to document it and it's all over your, you know, your, you know, your Facebook or your Instagram feed, you know, um, it just seems more visible now. In, in Midnight Climax, um, there's a murder of a young Chinese girl in mm-hmm. this. And so now Katz is, you know, going to go investigate that. So that it's, it's cool because now you're going into Chinatown. So now we're getting... Chinatown yeah. and you're getting like mixed cultures again in this too, which is yeah. interesting. So, because, you know, people, I I want people to understand, you know, everyone's different, but at the same time, we're all the same. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that had to be interesting writing that from it two was. different perspectives. Especially yeah. because, you know, the, the Japanese and the Chinese historically have not gotten along very well. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, and that dates back to, you know, a lot of stuff happened in, you know, centuries ago, but you know, just because, you know, we tend to look at, you know, the Asian community, it's like there's differences, you know, the, the Japanese are very different than the Chinese and the Chinese are not even just the Chinese. There's, there are Chinese who are, you know, from uh, the Southern uh, China, Chinese from Northern China, the Chinese who never were from China, who came from Southeast Asia, you know, so all these, you know, the, these different per- sort of permutations, you know, that um, the, no group is a monolith. And so it was interesting to sort of write that because I, I knew about these sort of differences between the sort of the Japanese and Chinese, um, you know, growing up as a kid, you're you know, kind of aware of that. The only other kids that were, that, you know, looked anything like me were, there's a few Chinese kids in my, uh, my school when I was, when I was growing up mm-hmm. and they, they were friends of mine, but I knew they came from a different sort of culture than I did. Mm. I, I had both friends, you know, and growing up in, in South Africa. Um, yeah. And, and in Kenya, when we lived there, there, you know, um, but in school, yeah, I remember, yeah, both, yeah, mm-hmm. both industrious people, very um, smart, smart as all get out, man. And um, I just, Asian. just thinking the yeah. two sides, yeah, yeah. And, but different, you know, and, make- and different cultures. I remember my one friend, Brad, um, going to his house and his parents were still incredibly um, from the mother country, basically. Mm. And um, so they had pretty much just moved there. And I mean, the food, the things they were growing and eating, I had no clue what was going on. It was like a kitchen, you know, to me looking at them, you know, I was an American kid, but mostly raised in Africa. And, but I'm looking at what they had, like things floating around in jars and Going, yeah. what is this? Do you have an aquarium going on? You know, and they, I just didn't have that? any yeah. clue. Yeah, 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 but they didn't. Hey, they're healthy, man. And so it was, it was really um, fascinating for me to learn. You know, and they were very open and welcoming, and um, you know, 
just I don't know, just had really good friends. Yeah. You know, it was cool. You don't care as kids without all the stuff that comes with history and exactly. and all of that. You know, unless you're taught to be that way. You yeah. know, um, which I wasn't. You know, yeah. so it, it we just yeah. You know, and well, it's, uh, we should take a lesson from you know kids like that to be open, be curious, not judgmental. To quote, you know, uh, uh, the great uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I I went I went to a multiracial school. Yeah. They call it multiracial international school in Kenya as a little kid and actually got kicked out, but that's a whole other story. But <laughs> um they were it was Snow White. Nancy was at Snow White, yeah, yeah. It was a, a multicultural school and I was the only white kid and I mm. got nailed, man. <laughs> I'm just saying I got you know, it was mostly different different black tribes and Indians. And, mm. um, man, but, but did they teach me, like, I, they taught me math, like you wouldn't believe. And, um, um, yeah, but I, I, and then I, I did get kicked out because, um, the minister of home affairs son kept hitting me and I hit him back and I didn't know it was the minister of home affairs son. Um, but he didn't know what I was because Politics. I was the, like the only <laughs> white kid. I was yeah. the only white kid and I had long hair, blonde hair. And he, you know, he, you know, in his tribe, the Maasai, the men uh, braid their hair really long with clay mm. and mud and everything and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and their hair. And so he's looking when the moms, you know, the, the mothers, the women shave their heads. So he's like, what are you? He was lifting my shirt to see if I had boobs. You know, we were like five years old or something, five, six years old. And he would spit on me, which is actually a blessing. Like, I don't know what the heck you are. So I'm spitting on you, you know, huh. to protect myself. And so he, he, he started hitting me on my head to make me shorter. And I turned around and it smacked him back. And then Nancy, my mom got a call saying, you just, you need to take Lisa out of school. And then I ended up in a convent getting my knuckles whacked. So there you go. The Catholic, yeah, I am. My dad went, went to a Catholic school in San Francisco and he, they, they wrapped on it. My dad was naturally left-handed. They wrapped on his knuckles until he learned how to write with his right hand. So, yeah. Are you kidding me? That's wild. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the knuckle thing's real. They used to put your hands under water, yeah. cold water and do it. Yeah. Don't mess with nuns ever. Apparently and not. um no, no, no. Wow. Well, I think we've gone around the world a little bit today and across yes, the we country. Have. We've yeah. been to what? We've been to Florida, we've been to San Francisco, Utah. Um have you been to Manzanar? Uh I have not been to Manzanar. Oh I need to yeah. go. Yes. That's part of our National Park Service. Um yeah. And that was one of the the internment camps. And yeah. we've been there, but not done at all what we want to do. In fact, I wouldn't even put it as anything that we've done. Um, but it's amazing because you you can, we've driven in and they you can see the different buildings, but yeah. they also had an extensive garden. No matter what was going on, there was this resilience. And yes. that, you know, the Eastern Sierras, is, that's cold, man. When yeah. that's cold, it's cold, but they were resilient and, you know, planted yeah, things. not even campsites at all. So, yeah. No, but how they did, yeah, the buildings I'm talking about, that wasn't like cozy homes, you know? No. Um, yeah, it's, it's the resilience mm-hmm. of people um, is something to, to look up to and aspire to, to be like, you know? as things get wonky in our world. But thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Um, when's the next one? When's the next, the next one? one? Um, you know, I'm working on it right now. Um, 
you know, the last two have come out in January of 2023, January 2024. You know, I'd say it's a pretty good, you know, it's it's nice to have a sort of self-imposed deadline. It's like, I think January of 2025 would be a a good time to, for book three, Uh, I'm going to do my best. So, yeah. Did you think that you were going to do a series? Or did you think it was going to be a one-off novel? No, after after I finished the first book, I really fell in love with the characters and knew I wanted to come back and revisit them. And also, if you think about San Francisco entering the 1960s, it's like that's a really rich backdrop oh. to play against, you know? Did anything interesting happen in San Francisco in the 60s? Like, oh, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, expect more of of, of that. So. Cool, cool. Yeah. You got to have wavy gravy in there, man. So, <laughs> Everyone, Peter Kagayama is the website to go to peterkagayama.com. The book is Midnight Climax. It is out now. You can get it anywhere you buy books. And uh, try your independent bookstores, too. And if they don't have it, ask them to order it. Um, Bookshop.org. Are you on there, too? Amazon, all that? All that, yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Have a great day. You, too. Thank you for listening to Big Blend Radio. Keep up with our shows at BigBlendRadio.com.